Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, then all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Good morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for November 15th, 2020. Koyo Kubosa here, so very, very glad you joined us. Well, <laughs> Northern Hemisphere, no matter where you live, it's probably getting pretty cold now. Even here in Central California. Uh, and of course, it's always relative and uh, that's not just something mental. I think our whole body physiologically uh, habituates, gets used to things and, and so forth. So uh, I remember when we used to live in the Midwest and cold winter time, maybe sub-zero, you know. And then for some reason, the climate change uh, uh, warmed up and it was about uh, in the low 30s. And everybody was outside with no jackets on, you know. Uh, so the weather uh, is an interesting analogy to make for all kinds of things. Uh, sometimes it's very valuable to consider uh, your emotional feelings, sort of like the weather. Uh, you can't ignore the weather. You always, everybody's conscious of the weather. You know, you got to go outside, you got to go to work, you got to go shopping or something. She says, well, what do you got to wear? You know, you got to bring an umbrella or uh, you got to wear something warm or what, you know. And when you have some stormy feelings or happy feelings, you know, and and you're aware, uh, you need to not deal with them, but be aware of those things so you can enjoy the good Times and so that you know how to adapt in terms of when you're not feeling very, things happen that you didn't like. Uh, you know, we don't rarely shake our fist at the sky when it's kind of kind of stormy or or uh, when we have to walk in cold weather from our cart. You know, the short distance from our cart to our house door or something. We don't shake our hand at the. <laughs> It's a doggone weather. Mother Nature uh, got it in for me or for us and stuff. 
uh, you accept it and, you know, well, you dress accordingly, take an umbrella if you need to and so forth. Same thing with uh, uh, being very adaptive to our emotional life and so forth. We don't, you know, you, you got to live. If someone gets up in the morning and still in bed and says, oh, it sure is warm under the covers there. I, uh, it's it's wintertime and, you know, our thermostat was turned down and uh, I don't want to get out in the cold. Uh, I think I'm going to stay in bed today and watch TV. And let's say you're a young adult and, you know, you got a job, you got responsibilities, and uh, you've got to find adaptive ways, positive adaptive ways. We're not saying denial or, you know, being in denial or or, or trying to be tough with, with whatever the weather is or be tough with whatever your emotions are. You have to, should be aware of them and act accordingly. But you got to live, live your life, do your business, take care of business. Well, anyway, I, I love talking about the weather. Uh, I was thinking about our pets recently, you know, and uh, if I come into a room in our house and I see my wife Adrian there and then I see our two dogs lying around right there and then maybe the cat in her lap and I said, oh, whole family's together, you know. And uh, so I was thinking about the dogs and how we got Raku, which is our golden retriever. And he's about uh, eight years old, I guess, and our yellow lab is about 12 years old. And uh, we got easy in December of 2007. And he was just a little puppy. And we moved here from the Midwest Chicago area to Central California in spring of 2008. So he was a little puppy in our van when we left the Chicago area. And I was driving the biggest rental truck we could get. And we made a made our move from Chicago to, to Central California, and uh, Adrian had some months earlier retired, and uh, that was the plan because she was raised and grew up in California, and but I grew up and was raised in Chicago, but I went to college here, and and we met, and uh, then I went to. Uh, uh, grad school in Iowa, you know, and I took a teaching job after that in, in North Carolina. And she always wanted, you could take the girl out of California, but you can't take California out of the girl. And she said, man, when I retire, let's move back to California so I could be closer to my family. Okay. We were close to your family. We used to get together for all the holidays with, with your side. And, uh, now it'd be nice if, you know, uh, we could get together with my side out in California, and so I I made it happen, and and we moved, and Easy was just a little puppy, and I had been learning, uh, reading, and learning that dogs are pack animals, and it's nice if they have companions. So I said, gee, it'd be nice if we had, you know, 
more than one dog. They, they give each other company in, in a certain very primal way, uh, even though, of course, their dogs, domesticated dogs, uh, form very close bonds with their human owners. But one day, now this is you know more than eight years ago, but I was um, going on Craigslist. When when we moved here and settled in, I, I, was, <laughs> I just jokingly say I was addicted to Craigslist. I always check Craigslist daily to see what was on the free list. And I tell you, we, I was able to get a lot of household things from Craigslist. And some of them, of course, were, were not free, but uh, you buy it, like, a, you know, our sofa, uh, a desk, a chair, uh, dining stools, and all kinds of things, uh, Instapots or, you know, whatever, garden tools. But one time I saw one that said, oh, free uh, golden retriever puppies. Now, if you, if you know about dogs as pets, yellow labs and golden retrievers are, num- are number one and two <laughs> as favorite pets. Their, their, their temperament and everything, they get along with children, okay? Sometimes one is on number one and the other one is number two and vice versa. So I said, oh, gee, this is an opportunity. Somebody in, and they were located close by in course code, which is where we live. Okay, we don't live in the town of course code, but we're about uh, 10, 15 minutes drive away. Uh, and so I was thinking to myself, well, it'd be really nice to get this opportunity to get this golden retriever. But uh, how how can I make that happen? So I, well, of course I got to, Adrian has to be on board. Uh, but here's what I did. This is kind of a confession, I guess. I said to myself, well, if we talk about it, supposing she says, no, I don't want to get two dogs. You know, we love easy, our yellow lab, but you know, we don't do Let's keep things simple and not put more burden on having to take care of another dog. So I don't know if she felt that way, but if she did, then, I didn't want to have to start to be persuasive and all this stuff and have a you know discussion about it. So I thought I'd be uh, uh, kind of kind of a, a Buddhist teacher. Okay. Why do I say a Buddhist teacher? Because I think about the story of the historicals, Gautama Buddha, um, twenty over twenty five hundred years ago in. India, Nepal, he walked. Huh? This is what the spiritual pilgrim pilgrimages were about. He he walked all over, and uh, villagers wouldn't find out through the grapevine that oh this this great teacher, you know, he was a great man in his time. He's a great teacher. He helped a lot of people. So the word spreads, and so oh, oh, the Buddha. The awakened one, you know, he's going to be coming, you know, and, and to our to our village and sort of like, uh, 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 you know, uh, 
current uh, flyers or wherever where where uh famous author or something is going on their book tour and you publicize it and people say oh yeah we'll go and you listen to the lecture or whatever and maybe you buy the book or something like this similar process i think and uh this is the kisama gotami story in the buddhist literature uh, she was a young mother who gave birth uh, to a child and soon after that the child some for some reason medical reason died and she was crushed now this is 25 over 2500 years ago and uh, the state of medicine was really much more primitive than than our sophistication nowadays even though nowadays of course we could say oh, oh you know medicine still is more of an art than a science we don't you know really know all the facts about illness and so forth but you can see the whole history pasteur and microbes and you know viruses and all that stuff okay. um so we have to put ourselves in the context of uh, uneducated, no public education, a woman who's a child, and there was a lot of maybe superstitious type of culture. And uh, she's holding her dead infant. And can somebody help me you know, in the village, uh, bring my baby back to life? Uh, I, you know, struggled for so many years, and finally... You know, became a mother like this, and then this happened, uh, wailing away. And so the villagers, they said, well, uh, you know, the Buddha's going to be coming uh, pretty soon. Uh, He's a great teacher, and maybe he could help you. And she goes, oh, okay. She got hope, you know. She thought maybe he had some miraculous power to bring the dead back. I think that was her idea in some fashion. Now, uh, the Buddha comes, she goes before him and tells the situation. He says, can you help me? And right away he says, yes, I can help you. She says, whoa. He says, well, here's what to do. I need some mustard seeds first, so you go to a house and just, you know, get some mustard seed for me and bring it back. And with these mustard seeds, uh, I can help you. She says, okay, because mustard seeds were plentiful. Every household had mustard seeds. Okay. And so she says, okay. Then he goes, oh, one thing, though, you have to get the mustard seed from a household that has not experienced any death of a family member. She says, okay. You know, she was so hopeful. She just, whatever he said, she says, okay. So she goes to one house and says, can I have some? Do you have any extra mustard seeds? Sure. Can I have some? Yeah. Oh, has anybody died in your family? Well, yeah, my grandparents died, you know, so-and-so, and, 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 oh, okay, no good, no good, goes to the next house, 
Can I have some mustard seed? Oh, yeah, we got plenty. But has death ever visited your house? Well, of course. I lost my so-and-so. And and I said, so you could see the pattern. She goes from so many houses, and they all had lost loved ones. Some had lost grandparents, some had lost parents, some had lost siblings, and some also lost children. Um, Mortality, longevity, and all that stuff was was probably pretty short in those days. Maybe people only lived in their 30s or 40s, perhaps. I don't know. That's beside the point. She was internally changed by this experience that death was part of life. Everybody is experiencing it. So she realized that the Buddha had helped her, made her experience about the truths of life's reality and, you know, what it means to be human to what it means to be about human life, being born, dying, and so forth. And she knew she received a valuable lesson, a harsh lesson, but she experienced it. And so she did like she knows everybody else did. They took care of the, the body of the dead family loved one and on those, you know, on those days, they take the body out in the field and cremation and bury it. Maybe put a headstone and and of course, you respect and you know pay honor to those that family members that have gone on. But she learned, experienced that reality of life, and probably, you know, about her own human mortality about life with a capital L. She learned about it. He gave her that lesson. So, of course, the whole Buddhist aspect here is uh, concrete versus abstract, uh, intellect and rationality versus living something and personally experiencing something. See, the Buddha was such a, he, he must have been a great man. He must have been a great philosopher. He must have been a great psychologist. Okay in the sense that he knew about people and and he didn't give her a lecture about, hey, well, you know, everybody has to experience this and that. He set it up so that she experienced directly the reality of, you know, human mortality and so forth, and not just personal and her. You know, and she experienced it. Yeah. But, she didn't listen to the teachings from his mouth to her ears, but she learned a lesson from personal experience that teach, you know, through the skin or right in the bones, flesh and bones. And it, that's when it's transformative. So uh, I was thinking, well, how can I use this teaching to get this golden look retriever and not treat it as an abstract concept 
and try to persuade, hey, let's get two dogs. So I I was I was uh I used some good Dharma wisdom here. What I did is I said, Hey Adrian, look at this ad here. Uh, you know, we're not doing anything today and so shall we go take and it's close by, shall we just go take a look and see what you know? She goes, Oh, just go to seed only? I said, Yeah, yeah. She says, Okay. So we go and very close by the, this, uh, they had a uh, golden retriever puppies, literal puppies, at least six of them, and they were young. They were, you know, cute little fur balls, and they were running around on the on the property of this the owner, the this young lady, uh, and uh, well, we we just. Interacted with the puppies, and then uh, after a while, after a while, I said, "What to Adrian?" I said, "Well, yeah, that was fun. These guys are cute. I see, I see. Wow, okay, let's go home." And she, Adrian, stuck her lower lip out, like, "Oh man, gee, these guys are so cute." And I said, oh, do you really want to get one? And she said, you know, she says, I said, well, it's okay with me if you want one. That's how we got Laku. <laughs> uh, she gave him the name Laku, too, because Laku in Japanese means easy. You know, and we have our, our yellow lab. I named him easy. For, I don't know how that happened. So she named this. Golden uh, halaku, which means easy. You know, sometimes maybe a host when you go someplace. Rakunishtekurasai means please relax, take it easy, make yourself at home. And that's the meaning of halaku. And uh, that's how we got two dogs, and they've been they've been our adorable, essential companions, you know, and the two of them, they interact, keep each other company, and uh, uh, it's from, it's, it's beautiful. Well, I want to give an introduction to our guest who's going to give us a Dharma Glimpse today, Jennifer Fuyo, and she was part of our LM10 group, and she lives in California, uh, Northern California, so let's hear from Jennifer Fuyo. Hello, I'm Jen Frio, and today I would like to share my Dharma glimpse with you. Last month, my husband's grandmother died. She had a long life, but she was also in a lot of pain. So we were relieved that her struggle with that had come to an end. His grandmother had lived a life of many stories. Some stories were about her endearing interactions with her family and other stories, as we may all have, were of interactions that were not so endearing. Her funeral date was set and some of her children had made the decision 
cannot go. This caused some friction between the family. One person said, how dare they not come to say goodbye to their own mother? They had lost respect for them as a man. Another family member was so upset that they said if they were to see these family members in person, that they better had had a good reason for not showing or else they would be ready to fight. I felt that they would go through with it. And picturing a middle-aged guy and a senior with their fist up was quite a ridiculous picture. But at that time, when it was said, that that family member was so serious. This sparked my husband and I to have our own talk. We were mostly grateful to not be directly involved in the family squabble. And it gave us an opportunity to discuss what we would want to happen in the event of each of our deaths. During that discussion, saying that perhaps some of y'all have heard came up. The saying was that everyone processes grief differently. But what if your situation is everyone knows how we are supposed to process death and one or two have decided to do it differently when things are always done a certain way and someone tries to buck the system or choose a different path. My husband's family is in this situation right now, and it's not so easy to navigate for them or us. So I think when that saying of everyone processes grief differently is heard, it's easy to nod our heads and say, yes, we agree. Even one of our family members mentioned this saying they said, I know everyone processes grief differently, but this is different. So I think putting that knowledge into action is where the work begins. As many things are, it's not a black and white situation, but gray. The grays are where you find a tangled and intertwined layers of emotions, perspectives, and experiences. And that is where I find my Dharma lives and works the most. Many of his family members talked about how they thought it was wrong for the few family members not to come. But no one genuinely entertained the idea as to why it may have been the right decision for them to not show up at the funeral. For all we know, they could have been going through something else, still dealing with past interactions, or perhaps their beliefs have changed as to how they want or are able to process and deal with the death and grief of their mother. Maybe tensions and frustrations could have been lowered with adding a little compassion to all of the pain and grief that was being endured definitely by all of them. But 
I understand how easy and comfortable it can be to slip into a dichotomous perspective and isolate others. It made me ask myself if I have done this lately. Maybe not about dealing with death, but perhaps other life choices that I make or comments on choices my loved ones have made. And the answer is yes. I have, especially with my now adult children. Oh, Man, it is hard to walk the middle way with them at times. And what I've come to learn and hold dear to my heart is that they are truly my best bodhisattvas gifted to me. They take me to the land of graves to help me practice and work on my dharma. I know it's intentional on their part, but let me tell you, sometimes I'm not so sure because they do it as if they, <laughs> as if it's their calling and they're getting paid to do it. <laughs> but when I really think about it, all of their choices that I have struggled with were never made to hurt or offend me. It was just what they needed to do for them, what was right for them. And as I'm guessing, we all are trying to do the same for ourselves as well. And almost in full circle for myself, I'm brought back to an Aquaius and say, talk about, show me your Buddhism. And I would say currently, my Buddhism can be black or white, always can be shown in the grays. So thank you, Sensei. And thank you all for listening. Yeah, wow. I, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I've used that phrase. Uh, I don't remember exactly the backstory, but uh, I think it that kind of a inner challenge when one is on this on a spiritual journey and you know learning the Dharma and uh, it, it, it's a work in progress. We know it is. We know it's not like hey, I'm going to say I'm enlightened. Okay? I'm I'm right now unenlightened, and then I'm going to be enlightened. Right now I'm ignorant and then I'm going to get some wisdom. Okay. We know it's not that simple either or. We know it's it's gray. So how do you express that shades of grayness? Okay. And if if our inner teacher says, show me your Buddhism. And you say, oh, well, uh, uh, I, I don't know. What is my state of Buddhism right now for me. Okay. Sometimes a, a challenge like that, you know, and probably in the old olden days, <laughs> you know, there was an actual master of a temple and if you were a monk, yeah, that would be an actual uh, dialogue. Hey, 
show me your Buddhism. You know? And we don't live in that kind of a vertical social hierarchy in the West. I think that the inner teacher and inner student of any individual can challenge themselves like that and that it could be a valuable tool in the spiritual toolkit you know, for our spiritual development. Say, hey, here's a life situation. You know, and you know what? Wow, we do have that little uh, refrigerator magnet. What would the Buddha do? <laughs> you know, these are all uh, tools that we could use. And uh, think about black and white and shades of gray. Um, I think about uh, oh, so many decades ago, I don't say years ago, but decades ago, I attended an educational conference because I was teaching uh, University of Wisconsin Center in Janesville, and there was a conference on creativity in education, higher education. And so uh, it was in Green Bay, Wisconsin area, I think, and we were going up there anyway, so I was able to attend. And one of the presenters said something that really stuck in my mind, and I always remember it as a good teaching. In higher education, what does it mean when you say somebody's educated? So to use it, to use it, oversimplify it and use a generalization or a stereotype, let's say you got a 18-year-old freshman college student. Huh? And four years later, he graduates and he got a degree. Is the different difference in his cognitive approach to life? What? How has he changed as a person in terms of how to live life? And how can educators and the educational system do a good job, better job, improve to reach people to say, "Well, this is what it means to be educated." Okay. In post high school, you know pursuits of education. And what he said was, things are not black and white. There's all kinds of shades of gray. It's a matter of probability. How likely? What do things depend upon? You can't just impose some abstract structure, conceptual structure, Either or, or it's either A or B or, you know, right or wrong. That's how, what it means to be uneducated. They have that kind of a dualistic, dogmatic, okay? And he says, when students come in, uh, they say, well, I don't know. Well, I'm a student, so I don't know, you know, anything. I'm taking this course, and the teacher uh, is going to tell me how to how to do this kind of thing, okay. and they say, "Okay, I was biased. I was my cognitive functioning was 
you know, not on a higher level. I realize now that there is this kind of process, and how do we learn to think in terms of shades of gray? Well, the answer is, teachers want to tell me. Yeah, that's his job, is that's his education and everything. And then, if the person continues on climbing up this mountain of truth or something like this, uh, everybody's on their own paths. They started from the base. And everybody, when you start from the base, you look around and people are pretty far apart. You know, the base is the widest circle there is. And but as you start to climb up this mountain of truth and you and you know you want to reach the summit there where, hey, the view, the perspective is wide, huh? And you could see everything and you know, how things how what the what the what the landmarks are. Oh, oceans over there, Mount there, you can get, you know internal map sort of, well, the lay of the land. But the interesting thing is, and this is nice for interfaith work, is that each individual starts to go up this mountain of truth, and then he happens to notice that the higher up he goes, people are, different people's paths are getting closer. When they started at the base, so they're way, way over there going up. They're, the person way over there going up. We're all doing our thing, which is, huh, that's how we learn. Every, everybody's an individual and so forth, different backgrounds. But as we sincerely learn about ourselves and about life, we realize that there are some universal virtues, we might call them. And uh, if we're sincere... We we know we have to, there's no elevator. We know we're going to make this trek. And uh, we, we put our heads down and we go. Then, boom, we might bump our heads and say, I made it to the summit, to the peak. I, oh, you're here too. You know, different educational experiences, maybe even different religions. You know, you can make that analogy work in a lot of different ways. But... um this is what he said is that you learn about all these different variations, diversity, probabilities, and you don't think about dualistic dichotomies of success, fail, right, wrong. To see the shades of gray is what it means to be educated. And that was a, I found that fascinating concept or model or whatever you want to call it, you know, this is what it means to be educated, to see the causes and conditions. This is why to, for as a Buddhist, I think, uh, it serves that purpose in the best kind of way, rather than through, a deity type of approach or or a, a chaos type of approach where you say, wow, we're helpless, we don't can't do anything. And if you can't believe in a divinity that's going to take care of things, then you say, well, everything's just so complex and everything. I'm just going to enjoy myself. 
I can't control everything. Okay. But to be educated means to learn about life and how one fits into this dynamic flow of life. Huh? Uh, and that means shades of gray. Huh? Uh, well, uh, I think that when uh, you have a family conflict, I remember one time uh, it was at a, some kind of a, a seminar retreat some someplace. Um, I remember it was in Michigan near Ann Arbor, and they had a panel up there. And one of the questions uh, in the audience was, I went away to college. You know, I was raised, my family is such and such, you know, Christian. That's all we knew. But now I'm on my own. <laughs> I went away to college and met all kinds of people and everything. And now I'm a Buddhist. Now Christmas, Thanksgiving and Christmas break is coming. I'm going home and, uh, you know, I'm in my second year of college or third year of college. So I know from past experiences when I go home on break and if we start talking about things like this, you know, that's why they say don't talk about politics or religion. Okay. And, uh, and how am I, how am I supposed to interact with my Christian family members and relatives when I've changed? You know? And I'm really sincere about my, my path, but it's going to form a have family conflict. Any advice for me? One of the panelists, teachers said, yeah, don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. Just show by the way you behave, you know, uh, how, because they know you've been influenced by Eastern philosophy and religions. They know that. But if you bring it up as a topic and you try to discuss it and say, hey, hey, hey don't you see, this is how, you know, persuasiveness or you're trying to you know help their understanding it's it's, it's not going to work it's just going to create conflict okay. oh just harmonize okay and let them see how you've changed as a person i thought that was brilliant huh um uh, you know well uh, Everybody is playing their own musical instrument. But if we're in an orchestra and we have our conductor, who is not our individual ego, but the Dharma, our Buddha nature, uh, everybody's living their own life, playing their own individual instrument, but they're harmonizing and there's an orchestra and beautiful music is made. That's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going. And you have a beautiful day. Thank you.